0: Hello, I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and this is Open Book, where I talk with some of the brightest minds out there about everything surrounding the written word, from authors and historians to figures in entertainment, neuroscientists, political activists, and of course, Wall Street. Sorry, I can't resist. Before we get into today's episode, if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We all love a review, even the bad ones. I want to hear the parts you're enjoying or how we can do better. You know I can roll with the punches, so let me know. Anyways, let's get to it. Now, Bill Cohen has written some great business books. He's one of the best. I am a big fan, and I am lucky enough to call him a friend. In this conversation, however, we go into his most personal book and actually my favorite non-business book of his. The title of the book is Four Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short, which is an enormously powerful, tragic read. Bill writes with great compassion about the lives of four of his friends, including JFK Jr. and President Harry Truman's grandson, Will Daniel. I want to bring this title to people's attention because ultimately it's inspiring. And as I can never resist business, we, of course, discuss Power Failure, his new best-selling book on the incredible rise and fall of General Electric. So joining us now is William D. Cohen. He's a multiple New York Times best-selling author. And we could talk about so many different things. But for today, we're going to talk about two of his books. I've read every one of your books, Bill. One of my personal favorites is Four Friends, so we have to bring that up. Four Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short, uh, which was a short book, but a brilliant book. And I want to talk about the humanity of that book. And then your recent New York Times bestseller, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, which of course is the most amazing story about one of our greatest industrial companies, General Electric. And so, uh, first of all, welcome to the show.
1: And uh, it's great to have you on. Great to be here as always, Anthony with you. Especially. And
0: also you're writing now for Puck, where you own your own equity in Puck as a writer, which is super exciting. Where can people find your writing on Puck? Let's start there and then we'll get into the books.
1: Sure. I mean, uh, Puck.news is sort of where you go to uh, read all of the Puck writers. Uh and then you can sign up for our uh, bi weekly missives uh, to make sure they sort of come into your uh, email box. Now, it ain't free, Anthony. Oh, I'm a subscriber, brother. I, I got all of you guys. I, I bought the whole rainbow of
0: you guys. Uh, and, and it shouldn't be free. The content is so good. You know, you have to pay sometimes. You get what you pay for in life. Um, I want to talk about your career as a backdrop to these books that you've been writing. I think one of the most interesting things about your career, at least for me, is that you were an investment banker. You worked in financial services for many years. And so not only do you have an outsider's objective journalist window into the industry, you were an insider. I, I think it was 17 years. Tell us about your career, how you got started and the transition into writing.
1: Well, I... Uh had no intention, of course, of being an investment banker. I was a history major in college and uh, wanted to be a journalist because I thought that was the way to changed the world. I wrote my thesis in college about the French existentialists and how they changed their circumstances during World War II. And so they're very activist. And so that made a big impression on me. And the way they did that was, Anthony, was becoming journalists. So I thought, okay, I will do the same thing. Uh, And I thought for sure I would just go to The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal immediately uh, after graduating from college. And believe it or not, that did not happen. And so I had to make my way into the world. But I was a journalist first in upstate New York. Then I went to Columbia Journalism School. Then I went back to Raleigh, North Carolina uh, and covered public education in Wake County, North Carolina for two years, won some investigative reporting awards, then decided, okay, for sure now I've got to get to the Wall Street Journal. This will be a no-brainer for the Wall Street Journal. They still wouldn't hire me. My father was pushing me to get my MBA. I didn't really want my an MBA. Uh, that's not where my head was at, but I thought, well, if I have an MBA and a degree from a journalism school and awards, then the Wall Street Journal will hire me, Anthony. And um, I did that. I got my MBA from Columbia, uh, graduated in 1987. The Journal still would not hire me. All you had to do on Wall Street to get a job in May of 87 was to be able to fog a mirror. <laughs> um, and I could do that. Well, that so, explains my entire career right there. See that? I'm a mirror fogger. There you go. That's right. Uh, we both are, Anthony. We both came up at <laughs> the same time. And that's it. I got, you know, I thought, all right, well, if the journal is not going to hire me, I'm not, my journalism career is over, uh, I'm going to go to Wall Street. And uh, man, I got my first job, uh, you know, of all things, financing leverage buyouts at G Capital uh, in New York City absurd as that was. I'd been, you know, I had no background for that. No, no reason they should have hired me, but they did. And then but you, like, you liked it though, right? Or you didn't like it? You liked I did, it, I didn't I it? Sure. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, it was, it was incredibly interesting. I mean, GE Capital was a fascinating place and a GE was, uh, you know, obviously, you know, and then I wrote this book about it, but back then, you know, it was the hot Place to be and leverage bios. I mean, it was just uh, incredibly exciting. My learning curve was astronomical, and you know, I'm not saying I was the best investment banker ever. A lot of people have said I was not, definitely not. But you know, I learned a lot from the inside first about finance, and then about uh, M and A advice, and uh, Wall Street politics, and you know, the Wall Street horse race. You know what those things are like. It's not for the faint of heart. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, no, it's, listen, it's, a, it's, a, it's a super aggressive place. But I want to take you way back now. Um, you went to Phillips Andover Academy. Uh, this is in, it's a suburb in North Boston, I guess. How far is it from
1: Boston? About 30 minutes by bus.
0: Yeah, but it's it's north of the city, right? Northwest of the right? city, yes. Or, northwest
1: of the city, it, it is- It wouldn't be over... mistaken for a suburb of Boston, mm-hmm. though. It's- uh... You know, it's near the New Hampshire border. Yeah, it's a separate so.
0: entity. It's a separate entity, but it's up there. I'm trying to I'm trying to set the scene for people that may not know Andover as well as you and I do. I've been to the campus. It's absolutely breathtaking. Uh, some of our presidents have been on that campus. It is uh, one of the greatest boarding schools in the history of American boarding schools. Uh, you attended that boarding school. You had four friends that you attended that boarding school with, uh, Jack Berman, Will Daniel, Harry Bull. John F. Kennedy Jr., obviously the most well-known name of those, but all four of those men, young men, I should say, uh, you got to meet at an early age. So you wrote this book, Four Friends. Why did you write the book about these men? And tell us a little bit about that story and your rite of passage as you were growing up uh, and becoming an adult.
1: So, I mean, not to, you know, spoiler alert, but um, each of these four men who I knew uh, well, but for a short period of time, obviously the four years more or less that we were together at Andover, and uh, this was a time, Anthony, before cell phones, uh, before social media, before it was uh, easy to keep in touch with people, you know, once you were no longer in their physical presence. Uh, As I like to say, you know, guys don't write guys' letters uh, that often. So, you know, I knew them well and intensely at that time. And then, you know, we went kind of went our separate ways to college, to our early careers, et cetera. And unfortunately, uh, you know, sadly, each of these four guys uh, ended up dying young and tragically. And so, you know, that was something I sort of carried with me for many years. Do you have survivor? Do you have survivor's guilt? No, no, because, you know, I had nothing to do with their Unfortunate, tragic deaths, obviously, but I but I knew them; they were my friends, and I did know them. And I more lost touch with more or less with some of them. But you know, I only knew them from that uh, period of time, and so you know, occasionally I'd run into them. Of course, I'd run into JFK Jr. You know, on the streets of Manhattan. But I wanted to know more about them. I wanted to pay homage to them and their lives, their short lives. Why though? And by by the way, there's no
0: way you can spoil this book because I knew the ending of the book. The book is. Is rich with a complex understanding of the human condition. And one thing that you and I both know, and I've actually learned a lot of this from you, and it's in this book there's chance and circumstance, and there's so many things and variables that are outside of your control. You know, you don't pick central Massachusetts as a place of your origin. Not saying that you wouldn't, it's a beautiful place, and perhaps you had a great childhood, but you, you know, you didn't pick it, you landed there. Right. Uh, from wherever we are all coming in from. Trust me, The uh, we we had a family motto in the Scaramucci family. Let's keep the word fun and the word dysfunctional. So we had a dysfunctional blue collar family beating the living daylights out of each other on Webster Avenue. But here you are, and you're writing about this. These guys didn't pick their lives. No. Uh, and yet they had this, in uh, some cases, halos, in some cases, pitchforks. And they had things about their lives that I think affected them and perhaps led to their tragedies. Do I have that right? Uh, You
1: know, obviously, uh, Right. I mean, uh, the the tragic circumstances in each case were, you know, impossible to foresee or to expect. And many, in many cases, sort of wrong place at the wrong time. The stories are incredible, you know, stories of how they got to Andover, the stories of what they did after they left Andover. I mean, but, you know, you could say that John Kennedy Jr. never had a normal life. He used to first and only child ever born you know into a family that was living at the white house so he was constantly on display, you know, his life was uh, completely abnormal. He was, you know, obviously incredibly handsome and um, fun. Talk about fun to be with, but, you know, did things that were, you know, reckless. What I came to realize and fully appreciate and piloting a plane that was beyond his capabilities on a very foggy, you know, hazy summer night was probably not the best decision uh, he ever made, obviously the worst. So uh, could that have been foreseen? I mean, possibly, but uh you know i think it just goes to anthony the fragility of life which is something we all know deep in our guts and our souls but we don't like to think about it very much and i thought i would write this book as a way to get at some of those existential issues of our existence getting back to you know my understanding and appreciation and respect for the ex- the french existential philosophers so it's all kind of a piece if you will
0: I'm going to go over the these lives. I uh, won't give up the whole book, but I'll go over the lives for a second. You had Jake Berman. He's a child of Holocaust survivors. He's uh, the unfortunate victim of a rampage shooting in San Francisco.
1: Which I might add gave us the 10-year ban on the assault weapons, AK-47s, yep. uh, which expired in 2004, unfortunately. And we're still living you know, 20 years later with the after effects of letting that law expire and that ban expire. Right, and we both know that over
0: that 10-year ban, these mass shootings and the fatalities they associated
1: with them. Well,
0: yeah, but, during but from the the Four to 04, the, the fatalities went down. I mean, so we do know we can prevent these. We can reduce mortalities and fatalities.
1: So why we're allowing this to persist uh, on literally yeah. a daily basis is the right. American. It's
0: unconscionable group. to me. It's one of the greatest frustrations of our current political system that they have such indifference to this, you know. Um, uh, Will Will Daniel, a uh, grandson of President Harry Truman, he meets his demise by uh, getting hit by a taxi cab on Park Avenue.
1: Yeah, I mean, Will uh, was a brilliant guy who was very conflicted about his upbringing. His, not only was he a grandson of harry truman his mother was margaret truman daniel his father was managing editor of the new york times clifton daniel uh this is a guy who you know uh, will could have done anything he wanted he was very conflicted about his family and his privilege uh and uh was a bit of a lost soul um you know even into his 40s uh, had been You know, returning from a party at like two in the morning that he'd gone to in Brooklyn, going back to his mother's apartment on Park Avenue when, you know, he crossed the street at two in the morning and got hit by a cab. Uh, You know, very, very sad and a a waste of of, you know. Great intelligence and a low, great.
0: A low key uh, guy, the way you describe him, though. You know, he didn't he didn't thrust his uh, background or who he was in anybody's never, face, really. Right? You know, never. Uh,
1: unlike unlike John Kennedy, could, JFK Jr. couldn't get couldn't away from it. it right? right? Couldn't avoid, couldn't avoid it. it. Couldn't avoid it. Nobody knew that Will Daniel was uh, Clifton right. Daniel's son or Harry Truman's grandson.
0: Right? You know, uh, Harry Ball. He's the heir to the his family's great fortune. Uh, he drowns with his two daughters on a sailing trip to Lake Michigan.
1: Well, I mean, that's like the saddest thing you could possibly ever imagine. It just, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, I interviewed his uh, a widow who I didn't really know. Uh, and just can you imagine, well, even though the events had happened, you know, 20, or 18 or 20 years earlier, you mm-hmm. know, sitting and talking to her in her Chicago suburban home and here at, you know, hearing her relive, the stories and and seeing the shrine that, that she had sort of built to him in the basement. I mean, it was incredibly moving and powerful and just shocking and tragic.
0: Yeah. And again, young and, uh, You know, it's just one one of these things. So, you know, you and I, obviously, we're reasonably well read. We read Sophocles and Aeschylus and all these uh, tragic stories. And then, of course, we're faced with these in our life, right? Because this is this short life with uh, uh, mortality around us and our own mortality. Let's go to Jack Kennedy's son, John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, we had Carol Radziwell on uh, to talk about her book a few weeks ago. As you remember, she was married to Anthony Radziwell, who, who died of testicular cancer three weeks after yeah. John. Of course, nobody was expecting John to die. Uh, he was a very healthy, vigorous guy. Uh, but Anthony had uh, was stricken with cancer for a decade. Um, but, you know, He's an iconic figure to me you know I I remember him and he's a couple years older than me but I remember him being on the cover of people magazine bill and it was he was the sexiest man alive he was a couple years older than me and let's just face it he was a he was a chick magnet okay we'll just call it that I don't know if you're allowed to do that anymore due to political correctness but he was tell, tell us a little bit about him tell us a little about your interaction with him your feelings towards him.
1: Well, uh, you know, I he was a uh, a junior and or we used to call uppers when I was a senior. Uh, I was one of his blue key advisors. He was in my dorm the reason he was in my dorm is because my dorm was next to the Andover Inn. Uh, He still had Secret Service protection at that time, being under 16 during part of that time. And um, so the Secret Service was in the Andover Inn next door, you know, to try to provide a, you know, a sense of quote unquote security for John. And so he was in my dorm and we just became friendly. Um, You know, everybody sort of wanted to be uh you know around him just magnetic and you know physically and uh, personality wise just a lot of fun and uh yeah everybody you know he was i mean an unbelievable draw for people and so i mean we just became friendly through that year and uh, a little bit afterwards and uh I mean, of all the people, obviously, uh, he's the one we all feel like we we know ever since saluting his father's coffin, you knowing he's three years old. You know, that is one of those iconic images in American history and the tragedy of that. You know, he would invite me occasionally over to his apartment on Fifth Avenue and meet his mother and, uh, you know, and, and of course, being from uh, Massachusetts, you know, the Kennedy name was, you know, akin to papal supremacy. I mean, it was extraordinary.
0: I mean, listen, it was America. I mean, look, I mean, we, it was American royalty. I mean, even no for uh, uh blue collar kids in, uh, Port Washington on Long Island. I mean, the Kennedys had a glamour, they had a glitz to them, but they also had a a regality in terms of the way they they held themselves. They were good looking people. And, you know, John Kennedy was uh, quite charismatic and thoughtful in terms of uh, what he was trying to do as the American president. And, you know, what happens with tragedy, though, Bill, you're a great writer, but tragedy has a tendency to magnify things, doesn't it? Tragedy has a tendency to increase the intensity of our emotional experience to the story, right? Happy, happy endings are great, but tragedy, there's a pathos to it that sort of tugs at our heartstrings. Am I, am I
1: right? Well, you're, abs- you're absolutely right. And I think tragedy allows us to learn more. Than, than happy endings do. I know happy endings are very useful for places like Disney Animation, but tragedy helps us learn who we are as people and the, you know the reality of our circumstances as human beings, the finite nature of our existence. And they say that nothing focuses the mind at night like you know an execution in the morning, Anthony. And we're all sort of facing our own demise. No one gets out alive, and I think that fact alone adds uh, a certain sense of urgency, especially as you get older, to your life. And again, going back to the existential philosophers who preached this idea of living uh, every day of your life as though it would be your last. Uh, you know, that's a very hard thing to do in practice. If that were the case, I'd be you know, eating macaroni and cheese all day long because you know that's mm-hmm. going to be my final meal uh, if I can manage it. And so, you know, you just have to do the best you can, and and that's sort of what I how I think about you know my life as a as a writer now too is uh, you know trying to kind of do as much as I can because you know I wasn't meant to be a writer. Nobody wanted me to be a writer. Uh, my teacher at Andover. I went back in writing this book, Anthony, and got all of my teacher reports and and housemaster reports about my existence at Andover during those four years, which was quite eye-opening, I must say. And one of them was uh, from my uh, English competence uh, teacher in ninth grade, who basically said, you're a terrible writer, you're a lousy writer. I hope you're not ever thinking about becoming a writer, because that will be a majorly dead end for you. So nobody uh, wanted me to do this. And I wasn't if, – if I hadn't been fired by J.B. Morgan Chase in 2004, I'd probably still be an investment banker. So I see this as sort of a blessing, and I take advantage of it uh, all day, every day. And that's why I write as much as I try to and write long, big books. Well –
0: I love the book. I mean, I guess because we're contemporaries and there was something in that book that uh, made me realize our fatality more than I typically do. Maybe we're both getting older. I don't know. But I, it just made me think about, you know, we're here. I took uh, my wife, Deirdre, to the Acropolis a few weeks ago. We were up All right. at, the, at the Parthenon and I was walking the Parthenon thinking of Pericles. He was there 2,500 years ago. And so you think it's a long time ago, Bill, but if you think in Generations, It's only 100 people are separating us from Pericles because, you know, each generation is 25 years. And so when you think about it that way, there's really just 100 generations between us and Pericles. And yet they're long gone. The Acropolis is barely standing when you look at it and will be long gone. And as the Greeks would say, even the stars have a beginning and an end. And so we have to accept that. And I do think it brightens our life, weirdly, uh, for some of us. Maybe some of us get depressed over it, but a lot of us, it brightens our life. It makes our life uh, almost more exciting to live. It makes our life more vibrant, more the colors are more vivid. But I appreciate you writing this book. I wanted to talk about it today and recommend it to people for Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short, because there's so much richness to the book about our humanity. I'm going to switch subjects abruptly to something you're really good at, Bill, which is writing about business and writing about the characters in business. I was first introduced to your writing uh, when you wrote the book about Bear Stearns, uh, which I thought was an amazing book. It, did you win the FT Business Book Award for that one? I can You won it for one of them. I, 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 I won it for one my
1: first book about Lazard. Okay, yeah, I read
0: read that as well. I read the Bear Stearns book first, then I had to go back and read the Lazard book. And then, of course, I read the Goldman book and uh, so on. But let's go to Power Failure. You're writing about this company, which uh, has been in our lives for, let's call it the modern era of America. General Electric has been with us the whole time. Tell us about it. Um, The Economist said it was uh, one of the best books in 2022, New York Times bestseller. Tell us about it. Why write it? What, what, what do we don't know about GE that you think we need to know?
1: Well, as you said, um, uh, Anthony, it's an uh, iconic company founded in 1892, in part through a merger. Uh, it was founded through a merger of Thomas Edison's company, along with another company that was owned uh, and run by a guy named Charles Coffin, who became the first CEO of GE. GE has mythologized Thomas Edison and its DNA, and he certainly formed one of the two strands of the DNA, but he didn't want the merger. Uh, It was forced upon him by uh, the big time bankers at that time, a guy named JP Morgan and another guy named Henry Ballard, who was the CEO of Edison's Company and had been a train, a railroad mogul. And then the venture capitalists in Boston that were backing uh Coffin's company. So, I mean, right from the get-go, Anthony, you've got sort of this MA overlay, this money men overlay that created this company and made it a dominant force in American life. And, you know, you, you have this incredible history of the company led by, you know, these quote unquote great men leading up to Jack Welch. And and one of the things that uh, I really sort of have taken to heart, you know, Charles de Gaulle once said that graveyards are filled with indispensable men. And, you know, I always think about that. And it not only does it tie into my Four Friends book, but, you know, even my book about, you know, Lazard, when I was at Lazard, I mean, you know, Felix Rowden and Michelle David Vey were ruling the ruse. Now they're both, you know, in the graveyards and they seem so powerful and so compelling and, and, You know, we, we lived sort of in fear of them. And so. know, Jack Welch is now passed, even though, you know, I was fortunate enough to spend many hours with him interviewing him about his life and what he was trying to do at GE and what he accomplished at GE and what some failures were that led to the company's downfall. And so I just thought it was this incredible story, Anthony, of the rise and fall of one of the great American companies, one that, uh, you know, helped define the era of American capitalism in the 20th century. And just to show you uh, how, again, fleeting things are, even though you think they'll be around for, forever. I mean, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, the Austrian economist, talks about creative destructionism. And, you know, the seeds probably of GE's both rise and its fall were implanted, you know, right from the start in 1892. And I found that just fascinating and riveting. And I thought it was having worked there, having uh, worked at GE Capital, uh, having, believe it or not, my office mate at GE Capital uh, was a guy named John Flannery who went on to succeed Jeff Immelt for 15 months, sadly, uh, as the CEO of GE. I mean, it just became one of these stories I couldn't couldn't resist writing.
0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? You know, the reason I'm smiling, you're listening to you talk is that, uh, you know, G.E., I was at a speech, Allen & Company, at the Sun Valley Conference year 2000. Warren Buffett gave a speech about the ephemeral nature of corporations. And he basically said that, uh, take a look at this list. And nobody recognized the list. He said, OK, well, that was the Dow in 1900. It's 100 years later now, 2000. Uh, and there was one name on the list that we all recognized, which was General Electric. Of course, Buffett pointed out that it was taken out of the Dow to temporarily in the 20s, put back into the Dow. And he was making the case that there's been no company since the origination of the Dow 30 stocks. It's actually stayed in the Dow 30. It's had been a constant circulation as times changed and corporations change. But, but what happens? Is it like an empire? Is it like a, uh, a family? You know, the expression, your shirt sleeves, to shirt sleeves in three generations. Is it a, a cultural thing? Is it a circumstantial? Do we personalize things that are situational? Do, does technology change? Or do you think it was something devastatingly flawed about General Electric's culture?
1: Well, I mean, I think there was an aspect to all of what you just mentioned that resulted in uh, the downfall of the company, which is now being split up and never more. Um, Look, I think part of it is that the the age, the great age of conglomerates, is is over. You know, so uh, once upon a time, you know, investors loved conglomerates. Now they don't love conglomerates, and so I think the support wasn't there from the investor community, but. The the real uh, catalyst for the downfall, I think that the GE, because it was so iconic and because it was in many ways a combination of Apple and Microsoft and Google, you know, rolled up into one for a very long time. It was an amazing technological leader in this country um, for a very long time and still uh, is an important technological uh, leader. Uh, but what I think none of us really fully appreciated, although I did since I worked there, was that GE, in addition to being you know, a leading manufacturer of you know, healthcare equipment and jet engines and power, electricity generating plants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera on and on and on, was that it was a Very large uh, non bank bank. It was a very large uh, unregulated financial institution that relied on the short term uh, financing markets, the commercial paper markets for uh, a lot of its capital. And then it would. It did the exact same thing, Anthony, that we just saw in spades with Silicon Valley Bank. It, it borrowed short and lent long, the classic mistake of uh, lending institutions and financial institutions. And I think that while uh, Jack Welch, who really created, I mean, it was around before Jack, obviously, but he really exploited uh, the opportunity, the financial opportunity that, that GE Capital presented to GE. He literally got off on arbitrage. arbitraging GE's AAA credit rating, its ability to borrow money very cheaply just above treasuries, and then lending it out and making a lot of money uh, on on lending it out and being expensive too. Uh, You know, we used to get warrants stock uh, in the deals that we financed, just like Mike Milken did at, at Drexel Burnham, And, uh, you know, he told me that it was a lot easier to make money from money than it was to make money bending metal into, uh, you know, an aircraft engine. And of course, he was absolutely right. And it became something like 50 percent of GE's profits. The problem uh, became, of course, like it did uh, across the spectrum in 2007 and 2008, is that while I think Jack understood the risk, at GE Capital and uh, had people like Gary Wendt and Dennis Maiden in charge of GE Capital, who really understood what risk-taking was all about. Jeff Immel was a different animal. He was um, more of a marketing guy. I don't think he really, in his heart of hearts, understood the risks that were lurking at GE Capital, especially when the shit hit the fan, uh, as it did across the board in 2007 and 2008. And uh, that's what became the catalyst for the downfall of 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 GE. People, you know, were focused on the Wall Street banks in 2008, as they rightly should have been, and on the car companies and on the big insurance companies like AIG. Most people don't even realize that GE almost went down the tubes. GE Capital almost filed for bankruptcy. Twice, And if Jeff Immelt hadn't gone to Hank Paulson and Sheila Bair at the FDIC and begged for a bailout, GE was not part of the TARP. They had to beg for a special situation bailout access to financial lines that the Fed and the Treasury are making available.
0: They got got Buffett to make an investment as well, right? They
1: got Buffett to make an investment, just like he did it in, in, in Goldman Sachs and in Bank of America, of course, paying a Warren made a ton of money on that investment. Uh, they raised capital from uh, the public as a result of Warren's investment, just like Goldman Sachs was able to do. You know, so, uh, you know, to Warren's credit, he sees great companies in distress and knows what to do and takes chances when others won't. But that led to a, you know, a series of situations that uh, ultimately resulted in the downfall of the company, which I document, uh, you know, in the in the book. And it's, it's, re- it's just an incredible Incredible story of how important it is, Anthony, and you know this. The choice of the CEO is incredibly important, and and one of the tragedies of GE is, of course, Jack, who was, Welch, who was so successful, you know, the, the the manager of the of the of the century, who took over GE when it was worth twelve billion and made it worth six hundred and fifty billion. You know, it had a very public succession process, two years on the front page of the Wall Street Journal every other week, and chose Jeff Imel- and the first thing out of his mouth when I sat down with him at the Nantucket Country Club in August of whatever it was, 2018, was, you know, I I fucked up. He literally said that to me. I fucked up and I chose the wrong guy to be my successor. And, you know, there are consequences for those decisions could Jack Welch have kept that company together. You now I get asked this uh, you know a lot and it's one of those hypotheticals we'll never know the answer to but I believe Jack uh, understood better than Jeff the risks that were embedded at GE Capital I believe that Jack got rid of Gary Wendt because he thought Gary, you know, was too ambitious and embarrassed the company with his divorce. Of course, Jack embarrassed the company with his divorces. But put that aside, Jack uh, was a big Dennis Naden fan. Jeff was not a big Dennis Naden fan, got rid of Dennis Naden. And I think that Jack would have uh, listened. You know, there are people warning Jeff Immelt uh, about the risks embedded at uh, GE Capital long before the 2008 financial crisis. People like Bill Gross, the bond king. People that Jeff Immelt should have been listening to. Uh, People like uh, Jim Grant, uh, the incredible writer and editor of Grant's Interest Rate observer. You know, Jim Grant is one of my heroes, and he'd been warning Jeff Immelt at GE Capital for years. Uh, Other hedge funds had been warning uh, Jeff Immelt for years about the problems embedded at GE Capital, the whole borrowing short and lending long problem. And basically, Jeff ignored them until he couldn't ignore them anymore, uh, you know, in September of 2008.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, listen, you know, I... uh... I read Jeff's book. I think you had the opportunity to interview Jeff, right? You sure. interviewed him, right? No, yeah. You know, so. and
1: read his book. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So I mean, listen. I mean, you know, some of it, uh, you know, you get caught up in things. You know, you get blindsided by certain things. You know, I've I've made mistakes in my career. I went to go work for Donald Trump. I didn't see the. Full on malevolence. There, uh, other people are, will chastise me for that. That's fine. I accept the criticism, but at least I'm able to own it. I think one problem that people have in those positions—they have a hard time owning or being accountable for the mistakes that they're making. And I think the reason your books are so well done is that you elicitate what people do right and wrong, uh, and they—it it helps you fast track the learning curve, if you will, Bill. You know, where like, you like—you know—the more self-aware you are, the more you can acknowledge your frailty, the better off your career. Or is going to be, but also your mental health. And so there's so many reasons why I love your books, but those are some of the main ones. Uh, you're an MA guy. Jack Welch. Reformed. Former former and guy. Jack Welch made a thousand deals in 20 years. It's just sort of unbelievable. Did, did that make the company too big? Well-
1: yeah, in, in part. I mean, he was buying companies and selling companies all the time. I mean, it was basically, he and Larry Bossidy were like the original LBO guys. I mean, they were like their own corporate LBO firm, buying and selling uh, companies, you know, all the time. Uh, it did make the company very big, but it also, you know, created a tremendous amount of shareholder value. So, I mean, it's hard to necessarily criticize that, Um, you know, when Jeff took over, he got out of businesses that he didn't like, that he didn't think were right for GE. And he tried to focus it down on what he thought was important. And, you know, again, that gets back to the importance of the choice of a CEO. And, uh, you know, because the CEO is the one in charge as he should be. And to your point, I, I do think it's it's hard. It's hard along the way. In fairness to Jeff, it's hard along the way. He's, you know, he's an honest guy. He's an honorable guy. He tried to do the right things. He thought, you know, what he was doing he thought was right. And again, getting back to the importance of the choice of the CEO, because that's the strategic direction of the company is set by the CEO. And, you know, whether to go forward with a acquisition, even if the price is getting too high or not going forward, all those decisions are made by the CEO, the board has the illusion of authority over the CEO, but I think it's more of an illusion than than anything else. Although, you know, necessary, the board can make uh, the tough decisions to get to get rid of a CEO, which they did in in Jeff's case. Uh uh, but it's hard along the way to realize to, to, to come to the conclusion that the things you are doing incrementally on a daily basis are putting the whole company at risk on an existential basis. And so I know that's hard to do, but you know you really have to be very willing to listen to people who don't agree with you and hear their point of view, especially when they work for you and you're paying them a lot. And I think that Jack was much better at that than Jeff was. and I think that became a, also a fatal flaw for Jeff
0: so fascinating so so Bill I have five words or statements and I want you to react to them sort of like in a quick fire fashion okay you ready
1: yes lightning round time
0: okay ready lightning round time yeah
1: Duke University I love the place. I wish it loved me as much as I loved it. I wrote a book about the Duke Lacrosse scandal that um, they kind of can't forgive me for, although I don't know why. Very proud to have gone there. Proud to uh, be associated okay. with that place.
0: Yeah, I was asked to resign from the Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy because 26 students uh, didn't like the fact that I worked for Donald Trump. And so the uh, president, Tony Monaco, said bye-bye. I said, OK, no problem. So I left. Yeah, I got it. So I, I have that same uh, strain relationship with my alma mater,
1: Bear Stearns. I mean, what what an incredible story. Probably the most incredible uh, story for a firm that had been eight, around for 85 years, was so iconoclastic, so unique on Wall Street, so many interesting characters to disappear in a week and how that happened. You know, that's just one of the most incredible stories in Wall Street history. And I, you know, competed against Bear Stearns. I almost went to work there uh, I have a lot of friends who work there to 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 be able to write that story, Anthony, to be able to interview the people who were, you know, intimately involved with what happened there was one of the great privileges uh, of my life. Yeah, I it agree. It's an amazing book. Lazard Frere. Well, I mean, Lazard, I mean, I always I'm a big Francophile. Uh, You know, I went on my honeymoon to Paris. I I studied, you know, as I think I've alluded to several times now, the French existential philosophers in the original French, which meant that I got about 5% of what they were saying till I read them in English. I've been a Francophile. I love France. Love France. I'm proud to say that yeah uh, and, me too there are
0: there are oldest friends bill the french right. you know and uh, we have our differences but uh c'est la vie as they say right we exactly. can still love c'est each la vie, other
1: c'est la guerre. and have, have our differences i i always wanted to work there because uh, i got it in my head that, that that's where i wanted to work it was mysterious they didn't they didn't recruit on campus they didn't recruit the mba i was the only associate hired in uh, the year i was hired in 1989 i recount you know the story of how i got hired in the book which was kind of a fluke it was incredibly strange place to work but the characters running around. They were unbelievable. Again, another privilege to be able to interview all those people. They don't like me either, Anthony, the people who run right. the firm now. You, you know, you're an iconic. Bill,
0: Bill, nonconformists are generally disliked by conformists, right? I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. You can, you can live a great life, have your intellectual thoughts, independent freedom, or you can be liked, make a decision. You know, I decided that I'm going to go renegade, go rogue, build my own career, my
1: own conference. That's well, my own, friend. Anthony.
0: Yeah, yeah. Karen
1: said the same thing so well the other day. She articulated this too.
0: Right. Well, this is why I respect her, and she's uh, uh, she's always welcome on my show, and vice versa. I mean, my my thing is we have to we have to be that way for our kids. I believe that. I've got five children. I want to show them that there's a way they can live where they can actualize a level of their personality. And and believe me, I've got my faults, and they've been they've been on stage. My my faults have been parodied on Saturday Night Live. But that's life. I'm taking the risk, and I'm willing to deal with the consequences. My last one, ready?
1: Wall Street. Wall Street, though. You know, uh, a book that I wrote that doesn't get much attention called Why Wall Street Matters. It's a very thin volume. Oh, I
0: remember that one as well. Yeah, it's a
1: short book. It's a lot <laughs> like Four Friends. It's a, right. it's a smaller book than your usual ones, yeah? And, yeah. Uh, you know, I recommend it to anybody who's thinking about working on Wall Street, uh, if you can find it. Uh, look, Wall Street is an essential part of the world economy where the whole world has gone capitalist uh anthony mm-hmm. you know it's not even a question anymore so yeah. and wall street is the left ventricle of capitalism you, you know you have to understand how it works i feel like i'm privileged that i understand how it works i feel like my Mission in life is to translate how it works for those people who don't understand it and think they'll never understand it. So I write in layman's terms. I tell stories about what it's like there, where it's going, what it does right, what it does wrong, and uh, how it evolves and how it continues to evolve and how regulation affects it and how Washington and you know this, this symbiotic, uh, often lecherous relationship between Washington and, and Wall Street. Um, sure. This is my mission now.
0: Well, yeah. And listen, we got to keep it going. We've got to get our regulators to think about it appropriately, not over-regulated. And we got to get our players on Wall Street to be a little less gecko-like in terms of their greed. And we can get that right. It's a great arterial system for capitalism. What's what's next for you, Bill? Are you able to talk about anything that you're working on right now?
1: Yeah, why don't I uh, announce, uh, Anthony, on your show? uh, Okay, great. Make a little bit of news. My next book is going to be about apollo the private equity behemoth. okay
0: sure wow you got a lot you got a lot to talk about there new friends for you Coam. I and new friends for you the yeah the apollo partners are all going to become your best friends as right. a result of your honest objective expose of their
1: uh business and not only sort of the amazing story of the firm which is interesting in, in its own right. But, you know, I'm a sort of big believer in Wayne Gretzky's adage that you have to skate to where the puck is going to be, Anthony. And I yeah. think Apollo is skating to where the puck is going to be on, on Wall Street and finance and is literally transforming a Wall Street uh, in front of our eyes. And I don't think people appreciate that fully, what firms like Blackstone and Apollo and KKR are, are, are up to these days. Uh, you know, people think of Apollo as a private equity firm. Right, But of its five hundred and fifty billion of assets, something like four hundred billion are in private debt Th- These companies are becoming un uh, they're unregulated, huge alternative asset. Behemoth and gold, uh, Blackstone's market cap is the same as Goldman Sachs is now. So Goldman Sachs is highly regulated. Blackstone is highly unregulated, not un- completely unregulated, obviously public company, SEC regulation, but not to the same extent that you know a SIFI bank is. So places like Apollo are where finance is going. Where where it's headed, so I'm going to follow that puck and hopefully right into the goal, Anthony.
0: Yeah, I love it. Yeah, okay, I'm looking forward to the book on Apollo. I'll be uh, I'll be buying it. I've got to encourage you to come back on the podcast. I uh, I want to I want to read it and then talk about it with you.
1: You got a few years you, you before that thing. Emerges. All right. Well, there you so. go.
0: Okay. Well, I can assure you that my hair won't be gray then, Bill, because I will be. I, uh, but I have a great colorist. That's primarily the reason. You do. Why. I've got. A, I'm very impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Listen. You got. to yeah, Look. I, I, you think. I'm, you think I'm using Rudy Giuliani's colorist, Bill? Come on. No. Okay. This is not. not, This is not self-inflicted hair dye. This is done by a union beautician. Okay. And you're
1: not using Donald Trump's uh, hair dye either. So. Right. Thank God. Yeah. No. We don't want it to look orange. No. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, The two books that we highlighted today,
0: Four Friends, Promising Lives Cut Short, and Power Failure, a recent New York Times bestseller, best business book of the year by The Economist, uh, Financial Times best book of 2022, New Yorker, best books of 2022, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, The Story of General Electric. Thank you, Anthony. Always a pleasure to be with you. As Bill said, and I often repeat a line from Mel Brooks about relaxing, none of us get out of here alive. I think Bill wrote this amazing book about his friends whose lives were cut short for various reasons. Some of them had to do with their family. Some of it had to do with their risk taking. uh, But by and large, it was a group of people that had great potential. uh, And yet, as Bill and I sit here 20 years, and in some cases, 25 years after the deaths, of some of his friends, we have sadness because we realize how much of their life and all of these great things that we've been able to experience in our lives that they've missed. Of course, none of us can predict our future or what our fate is, uh, but what I loved reading in Bill's book was the compassion. What I loved reading was the stoicism And so unfortunately, we can't interview Marcus Aurelius, the great Roman general that wrote the book Meditations, uh, but we have great writers like Bill that we can interview that capture the same spirit of understanding the fragile nature of life, the fragile nature of the human condition, and no matter what our riches are, our family lineage the different privileges that we've been born with in this life, we are all given our set of problems. We have to witness our own demise. We have to witness the demise of our friends and loved ones. And of course, as Freud said, this makes us at times hysterical because we're the only animal on the planet that, I mean, maybe the elephants to some extent, we're not sure, but we're the only animal on the planet that recognizes its own death. And so with it comes a lot of hysteria and unfortunate sadness. So uh, love that book. I encourage people to read it. It's a great philosophical earthy anchoring to the importance and the meaning in life. And, uh, you know, listen, that was a phenomenal book, Power Failure, another great read, much longer book. Jack Welch. Well, I mean, what a character. I frankly didn't go into the Ken Langone interviews with Bill. Uh, I'm going to pat myself on the back here for a moment, if you don't mind. I I introduced Ken to Bill. Uh, Ken is typically skeptical of journalists. He's now gone on to become a very close friend of Bill Cohen. And I've got to tell you, the interviews in Power Failure between Langone and Bill Cohen are enjoyable. You will laugh out loud if you decide to read the book. Uh, So I don't want to miss that treat in my closing remarks. Um, But if you enjoyed this chat with Bill, uh, then make sure you read his other books. I'll be holding tight for his next book on Apollo Management, the legendary private equity firm. I had Bill Cohen on. He's a very famous author. And uh, he wrote about four of his friends that died. Tragically, he went to high school with them, but they all died around the age of 40, including JFK Jr. You remember when JFK Jr., Jack Kennedy's son, Jackie Kennedy's son died in the plane crash? Yes, of course. What do you think about people that are coming from money? They have a lot of pressure on them. You know, one of the kids that died was uh, the grandson of Harry Truman, President Harry Truman. Uh, Uh Another one was uh, uh, the inheritor of great wealth. What do you think happens to people that have this type of pressure on them coming from families that have these high profiles?
2: It depends on how the person that has the high profile treats their children, which I don't think you'll ever have that because you treat everyone equal, including your children. When you have you have five children, and I know for sure that you love all five of your children equally as well. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's a- another gift that you have. I-, I sound like I'm wacky, but I don't think you have very many faults. I don't see any faults in your personality. All I right, don't.
0: all right, you're very sweet to me, Ma. You know I love you too. All right, let me ask you this: You remember Jack Welch from General Electric? Yeah. What'd you think of him?
2: I never really read about him or anything, so I can't really give you an opinion. What did he
0: do? No, but he was a very famous guy, but he ran the business very tight. Some people are critical of him because he pushed too hard on the accounting, but I liked him. And I remember the day you got your first washer and dryer. They were both General Electric. That was good, right? I I,
2: Yes, and yes, General
1: Electric. When I
2: was young, first of all, it was good for the average person. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. My father was a hustler, (laughs) in his day and he had many many businesses mm-hmm. and i was raised very very spoiled and i have a son like you who have spoiled me
0: immensely and i can't thank you enough and that's how i feel i am anthony scaramucci and that was open book thank you for listening if you like what you hear tell your friends and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast while you're there please leave us a rating or review If you want to connect with me or chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter or Instagram. You can also text me at plus one nine one seven nine oh nine two nine nine six. I'd love to hear from you. I'll see you back here next week.